Lisa. Welcome to my podcast. If there is such a thing as a Facebook star in the Jewish world, I think her name, and I'm sure she's not happy that I'm saying this, <laughs> her name would be Sarah Tuttle Singer. She's, uh, she's really developed a name for herself with her, her thinking, her complexity. She runs new media at uh, Times of Israel. She wrote a terrific book last year, Jerusalem Drawn and Quartered, and she's in L.A. God bless you. Sarah, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me and th for those lovely words. I'm honored to be here and grateful to you for your for your friendship, also for your you know, mentorship. When I first started writing, you would often read pieces that I had written and, and comment, and we'd, we'd talk about them, and that was very helpful in well, guiding me. One of the things that always fascinated me about you is that you have these these opposite kind of tendencies. You have a certain very urban style as if you'd be on the Upper West Side or in the village in New York, and yet you live on a farm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just it's hard to figure you out. Good. But it's one thing <laughs> I like about you. So for readers who don't know, you used to live in L.A., and now you live on a farm in Israel. Yeah. How did that happen? I live on a dirt road yeah. covered in seashells, of all things, uh, next to a field of cactus and um, olive trees and clementine trees, and it's it's in wheat and it's it's magnificent. And but that's only half the week, so it gets even more nuanced. I, I also live in Jerusalem the other half of the week. So I um, with your kids. On the days that I'm with my kids, I live on the Moshav. Oh, and I so see. So I'm I divorced. See. My wonderful ex-husband is a terrific father, and we have joint custody. And so on the days that the kids are with him, I uh, waltz off to Jerusalem because I so, love being there. Right, right. And that's where you got your idea for your book. And I remember when it was just an idea. And then you ended mm -hmm. up spending a year with Christians and Armenians and Muslims and, and Haredim and stuff. T tell us about the book. So the book is called Jerusalem Drawn and Quartered, and it's about living in the old city, not just in one specific area, but living in all four of the quarters. And so I spent my year moving from quarter to quarter. I started out during Ramadan in the Muslim quarter, and then I um, was Jewish quarter during the High Holy Days and the Christian quarter during Christmas, and then I was back in the Armenian quarter during the, the time that they commemorate the Armenian genocide. And it was an incredible experience. Because one of the things that strikes me about the old city is it's the hottest piece of spiritual real estate in the world and it's um this place that is beloved by three major religions christians muslims and jews and there are so many people from these different faiths living there or walking through there and yet it's rare to see people look each other in the eye and talk to one another and so i wanted to see if it was possible to break through some of those glass walls and um, and get to know folks who were living in the different communities because I don't so fit you in. Wanted right, to look I wanted to in the eyes. You personally, I personally wanted, wanted to, to talk to people, hear their stories, share mine too. Know when to speak, know when to shut up and listen, and find mm -hmm. see if there were ways to create conversations that would lead to more conversations and more conversations, which I believe is the basis for necessary change because it's really the foundation of friendship. Yeah, I wonder if there's a, a type of justification or uh, for the serenity of staying in your own quarter, you know, because in a way it's kind of working most of the time, you know, so that the Armenians, there's a certain charm to walking through the Armenian quarter and to know they don't really care that I'm there and they're not that interested in me. They're not like some outreach PR person that wants to get me to fall in love with the Armenian style. You know what I mean? There's a certain authenticity 
to a group that is just really into themselves and what they do. Does that make any sense? It, it, it's yeah. interesting, yeah. Um, and sometimes I relate to that. I mean, it's very yeah, comfortable. Yeah, I felt to, that. You know, when I, I came home for 26 hours for Passover to my, uh, to my Aunt Karen and Uncle Robert's Seder table, and it was just wonderful to be in this this bubble, this bubble of love and family where we all pretty much feel the same way about politics and about faith and peoplehood. And, and we all love the same bottle of red wine and, and really like our quinoa salads, which, you know, we didn't eat on Passover. Um, although I think we can, right? Quinoa. Uh, it depends if it you're depends, Sephardic. Right, but we're Ashkenazi, yeah. so we're <laughs> you're really Ashkenazi. repping you're the definitely are Ashkenazi. Um, you're one of the few Ashkenazim that doesn't claim to be Sephardic. Because it's the cool thing today. Say, oh, I'm Ashkenazim, but I, I, I think I'm part Sephardic. You're not. You're, you're wonderfully Ashkenazim. <laughs> although, <laughs> although, <laughs> although, doing a little research on my mother's family maiden name, actually, she never changed her name, but the name that it was before that it was changed to Ellis Island shows that we probably came from Baghdad to Belarus. So, oh yeah, you so I'm going to totally have to wrap my arms look. around that folklore. Yeah. but. Um, I had an experience in the mm-hmm. old city. I don't think I ever shared that with you. And it was a day of demonstrations. It was on a Shabbat. And I was like shocked as we were going to the Slonimer. Uh, apparently, they had mm-hmm. this phenomenal mincha, you know, prayer service. And I was with my friend, Chaim Seidler Feller. Uh, so we were like literally hijacked by this demonstration. There were cops on horses and really uh, unsettling. And it was a sense of aggression, and it was dark. I guess they were protesting um, some parking lot that was going to open just adjacent to them, and you know it violated the, you know, the spirit of Shabbat and so mm. forth. So uh, I spent like it was a half hour in this really heated moment, screaming, shouting, horses, riot police, and stuff. And I'm in the middle. I mean, I'm dressed all in white. I felt like the middle of an Oreo cookie, <laughs> and I'm debating, arguing. They don't know who I am. And eventually, we end up at the uh, Slonomer uh, Shul. It's a completely different experience. And I guess they have a book called The Ways of Peace. And I asked one of them, how come they're not in the demonstration? And they said, well, you know, I can't give you the answer on one foot. <laughs> but they looked exactly the same as the ones who were screaming and yelling. They were dressed the same way. And yet, even within the bubble of ultra-Orthodoxy and Haredi, there was a difference. And that's the kind of thing, you know, we would never know looking right. from far. Exactly. And that's why I, I think it's important to to go behind the walls into these different communities. And Did anything surprise you? Everything yeah. surprised me. Give me, like, some of the things. Because you've known Jerusalem for years, and yet you, you still went in there and learned more. First of all, I've, one of my... The reasons I'm fascinated by the old city comes from, you know, early childhood stories that I heard from my mother, where she talked about being there in 19, after 1967, after the Six-Day War. She was there in July, so it was right after the war, after this call for volunteers, and she came over from—she was actually in the Philippines at the time, and so she flew to Israel. And so she told me these wonderful stories about walking the— the old roads in the old city and seeing the scarves floating and the camel coming through Damascus Gate and the smell of the coffee and the spices. And she also told me a story about my great-grandmother who had this hot, torrid, sexy, steamy love affair on her (laughs) rooftop with an Ottoman official. And so I knew all these stories growing up, and I loved these stories, but I hadn't 
known what it would be like to fall in love with it until I saw Jerusalem for myself and it happened on a rooftop overlooking the old city and seeing this mosaic of faith and peoplehood and I was felt so connected and so alive. And then a few years later on another summer program, uh, I'd been there, the first time was in 97 on L.A. Olpan actually, and then I came back in 98. In 99 I was volunteering and I was standing by Damascus Gate in the moonlight and suddenly people were throwing stones at me. And to this day, I have no idea why I didn't have anything that marked me as Jewish or Israeli. It might have been I was dressed inappropriately. Who knows? I just know that I was terrified. I was still, you know, I hadn't even started senior year of high school. And so I um, found myself crying, covered in blood, and I made a promise to myself never to go back in the old city. Uh And it took 15 years, and uh, and Avi Saharoff, the a journalist I was working with at Times of Israel, he's the creator of the hit TV series Fauda, a remarkable person, mm-hmm. to bring me back into the old city. And while I was there, trembling, reliving the trauma of what I'd been through 15 years before, and, and also at the same time trying to play it cool because I didn't want Avi to know that I was you know, trying not to pee in my pants. I was so nervous and about being there again after vowing never to set foot in the old city after that. But while I walked through, I just saw people. I started to calm down step by step as I looked at these different people who were around me, mothers carrying their babies and guys playing backgammon and and pretty girls flirting with the guys behind the stalls. And I saw people. And so that was overwhelming and surprising and a good reminder to keep going back day after day and to speak with folks. And it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows and eating kanafe and hummus and singing kumbaya. There were some pretty tense moments and very difficult times in the old city during my tenure there. And in fact, I still am there often. And it's not always easy because people have moods and the old city has moods. And sometimes things are going on politically that make it really rough. But overwhelmingly, people were people. Fascinating, complicated, interesting, nuanced. Yeah, there's something about you I don't see anywhere else. Because, you know, there's the cliche of tough love. So people say, yeah, I love Israel, but kind of stuff. You know, it's so common. It's so out there. We hear it all the time. In your case, you have this mad, passionate love affair with Israel that you describe so lyrically. And then... When you criticize Israel, you're just a sharp, you know? And it's really hard to see both sides sometimes. You know, is that the person who's so madly in love? And you you really, like, take the gloves off if there's something that bothers you. I guess it's to your credit, but it's rare to see that intensity in in both sides, on both ways. Am I, am I making any yeah, sense? I think I... I Thank you. I, I think it's... I, I, and I, I'm not even sure it's a compliment. <laughs> I, I'm going to take it as one. <laughs> it's I, just a fascinating thing. I feel intensely. I love intensely. I love with real passion. And when I see things about the place I love that I know we can do better, I'm going to criticize it. Maybe that comes from... You know, you're you're not my psychologist and we don't need to get into this. Oh, but, no. Let's but do my it. mother... You know, my mother loved me with the, with the ferocity of a mother lion. And yet... If I you know, brought home a B-minus on a paper, I was going to really hear about it because mm-hmm. she knew I could do better. She mm-hmm. saw what I was capable of, and she wanted me to be the best that I could be. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I see love that way, that when we 
when we love someone or we love something and we truly see them and we see their potential, we want them to live up to that potential. And Israel, Israel is this incredible work in progress. And we are young. We've never known a day of peace since we came into being, even though, you know, we're obviously we're a very old, we're a country based on a very old idea and an old dream and yearning and, and a very ancient peoplehood. But as a country, we are so young. And we're in those those birth pangs still. And I, I want to see us achieve the real potential that we, we have of being that light unto the nations. And we have to be among the nations and embrace the nations if we're going to be that light. Is, is it possible that, you know, we'll never come close, that Israel will never come close to reaching your ideal for whatever reason? Maybe it's a confluence of circumstances at this point. Uh, combination of the environment that Israel is in and just the, I don't know, the nastiness of politics, the reality of politics and the governmental system in Israel and people's emotions and people's fears and stuff like that. Is it possible that this might be a status quo that you might have to make peace with? You know, you know? It's funny. I was uh, giving a talk last year about the need to know people from other communities, especially Palestinians. And one of the rabbis brought up the story about Jacob and Esau fighting in Rebecca's womb and Rebecca beseeching God and saying, you know, why is this happening? Make it stop. And um, God said, that's just how it is. Jacob or Esau will always be fighting with Jacob. And he said, maybe that's just how it's always going to be. The Arabs are always going to be trying to kill the Jews and we're always going to be defending ourselves in, in a constant state of war. And that's just how it is, and maybe we just need to accept that. I think we have to live our lives assuming that we can make it better. Mm. And maybe it will never change. Maybe mm. we're always going to be fighting with the Palestinians. Maybe there will always be struggles within, in, in, with the Israelis um, about you know, uh, religion um, uh, and left-wing and right-wing and, and, and different problems amongst the different cultures within Israel. Maybe there will always be these things that are, that I think we need to do away with. But I think I have to live my life assuming that we can make it better. And even if, you know, I live to be 120, God willing, and nothing's changed, I won't feel like I've wasted anything. I think what's difficult for me is the awareness that Israel allows protest, it allows dissent, it has a Obviously, uh, you know, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of organizations and social activists mm -hmm. and social justice activists that wake up every morning in Israel to try to, you know, fight for the rights of Ethiopians and minorities and women and Bedouins and so forth. They, they exist, and it's that corrective mechanism that happens in Israel, and I think sometimes we just don't see that. We just see what looks like lack of progress. That's yeah. true. And, but there is a lot of stuff going on on the ground. And there are incredible organizations that are doing really meaningful work. And so I love those stories. Yeah, yeah. Th th those from, I mean, it's, it's really like uh, the glass half full and half empty. Maybe I lean towards, you know, looking at the corrective mechanism in Israel mm -hmm. that's allowed. I, I, I kind of focus on that uh, pro bono lawyer who's fighting for the rights of you know, immigrants mm -hmm. and refugees in Tel Aviv, that's kind of where my heart goes. 
I love that lawyer who's fighting for their rights kind of thing, you know, right. and fighting to fight pollution. And there's all these fighters in Israel. But at the end of the day, 90% of the image of Israel in the world is seen through the politicians, which is probably the worst part of Israel. <laughs> You know, so we get so influenced by that, uh, and the image that they give out is so negative, Sarah. It, it's you challenging. Know? It's exhausting, actually. But I think you, you know, you're in a position, and 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 I'm also in a position to help share these other stories about the progress that's happening on the ground and the wonderful things that that people, individuals are doing and small groups of people are doing to try to make the world a better place and try to make Israel a better place. And, and we, you're courageous because I see your post on Facebook and sometimes the reactions are brutal, you know, from both sides. And, uh, and oh, I'm yeah, saying, how do you do it? How do you do it? You, know, handle it? You, you have a thick skin, Sarah. It, I don't, actually. I feel oh. it. I, I'm, But I also know it's part of the job. I remember one day in, in, in the same, you know, the same stretch of an hour, one person called me, you know, a, a Zio-fascist Jewish Nazi who hated Arabs. And then another person said that I was, you know, a, um, an, an, an Arab lover, capo, who hated Jews. And so, great. <laughs> you know, where, where yeah, do I, I, I think you're just you know, a lover of humanity. You know, I love so, people. I yeah, love you people really, really and... do. You, you did a story on us uh, for Jewish Journal. It was a cover story last year on, you know, you spend one day with each group in, in Jerusalem. It was amazing. Well, and then, that was, thank you so much for letting me write that story. I had yeah. a wonderful time writing it and yeah. a wonderful time living those stories. So a few weeks ago, I, I texted you on Facebook because I saw one of your posts. I really liked it. And I said, Sarah, please just write something for us. And then you texted me back a day or two later and you said, you know, David, I have something you might be interested in. And it's conversations with taxi drivers. <laughs> And next thing you know, it's on the cover of the Jewish <laughs> Journal so, this week, I'm the so week that you're in this. L.A. <laughs> so your father will be very proud of you. But it was really, a, you know, we kicked it around in the editorial room and we said, this is a real change of pace. We've never done that before. So talk to us a little bit because all your readers will see it in a couple of days. It's called Stories from the Road. And it's really stories of, you know, a very curious woman who loves people, loves stories, and who loves to take taxis in Israel. Well, I this is one of the things that I've written that I really had the best time writing, and it's been um, it's been a work when did in it progress. Start, your oh, love of conversations with taxi drivers, probably yeah. all my life. But I mean, this uh, this article in particular started the day I made Aliyah and started taking taxis in Israel, and because you get such a rich variety of different stories. And, you know, my dad's one of these people who loves to talk to strangers. And when, you know, when you're a 14-year-old girl in Los Angeles and your father's going up to different folks on the street or um, in, in convenience stores or in, in the donut shop um, in, in, in bursting and remembering everyone by name and saying, how are you, you know, how are you, such John, a jolly it's so good man. to see you. And he, and, he, and he remembers things about their lives and they were... They know him, and, and they have these wonderful shared moments together where he turns Los Angeles, this big metropolis, into a small town like Plattsburgh, New York, where he's Speak from. Speak for a minute on your father. Oh, man, my dad is— He was involved in city my, politics. My dad was uh, involved in city politics. He was the Los Angeles city controller for 16 years, and before that— He's always been involved in um, in democratic politics. In fact, he met my mom in the Robert Kennedy campaign 
and they were both. My dad, I think, was head of Young Democrats in, in Los Angeles, and my mom I came in to volunteer. I wonder if he was there at the Ambassador Hotel. They, they were at the Ambassador Hotel the night he was shot, and they were supposed to be accompanying him down into the kitchen. And my mom said, I don't think we should go. It's, it's too crowded. I don't have a good feeling about this. And so they weren't in the kitchen with him when he was murdered. But my dad was also, uh, before that, a freedom writer in the civil rights movement. And he was um, jailed in Georgia for a number of weeks for helping register African-American voters and for um, you know t- uh, taking notes on the various meetings of the White Citizens Council and the ongoings of the KKK and reporting back. And, and, and they caught him and they put him in jail. And he's, he's lucky, um, a, a lawyer... Uh, a, as he was a lawyer named um, Aaron Bushbaum took care of him and and got him out. But um, he obviously he, seemed to influence. He really has influenced daughter. me, not yeah. just in um, in politics, but also in the way that you talk to strangers. And so, I think as much as I couldn't stand it as a teenager, I think I picked up on something from it. Uh, now, because I love talking to people just as my dad does. And so I'll get in a taxi and I'll say, oh, hey, what's new? How's your day going? And a conversation just spins off from there. Not all the time, but most of the time. And, you know, I also have my moments where I will get in a taxi with my headphones on and just want, you know, to listen to music and, and, and tune out. But for the most part, I love hearing these different stories and engaging with people. Right, and there was the Arab taxi driver who spoke Yiddish. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, first of all, Jerusalem is this multifaceted place, and you should just expect miracles all the time. And just as long as you go into your day with that um, worldview, you'll be pleasantly delighted all, and yet sort of reassured that that's just how the world is. So a friend of mine, uh, Shayna Bela, and I were over at Glen Bar over on Shalom Sion in Jerusalem, and we were heading to the first station to visit my friend Tova Hametz's place, the Terminal, which is this great arts and cultural center with great food and beer and kosher, but they have an alternative hechsher, so they're open on Shabbat as well. You don't have to pay if you're Jewish until after Shabbat ends. Um, so we were heading over there, and we, we get in a taxi, and... Uh, cab driver's name is Ahmed, and so as we get out of the taxi, I say to him, you know, shukran ma salame, which means thank you, have a good, you know, good night, or goodbye, actually. And he turns back, and he winks, and he says to me in Yiddish, sei gesund shkoyach, may you be healthy and more power to you, so. <laughs> as Yiddish as it yeah. gets. And I was just glad to have a witness for that, because people <laughs> think I make up these stories. I don't make up these stories, and anyone who talks to taxi drivers in Israel, really, actually, anyone who talks to taxi drivers, period, all over the world, knows that you get the most incredible stories from them. Well, how about but the one remarkable. from Herzl Boulevard in Rehovot to your home on the Moshav? And he he calls you Sarale. Oh, this guy. Because you can see your name is Sarah from the Get Taxi Right, Uncle app. Pinchas. Uncle Pinchas. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes your uncle. Just Uncle Pinchas. Um, and his name's not really Pinchas. He's got. It. I change everyone's names, and I try to conceal their identity for their own privacy, just because I want to tell their story. Doesn't mean they want their story out there. But this guy offers. Um, my son's got a cough, and he says, "Oh, you know, here's a cough drop." And my son says, "We don't take candy from strangers," and I'm quite proud of him. And then Uncle Pinchas says, um, "You know, 
it's, it's not candy. It's a cough drop. It's medicine. And my daughter says, well, we don't take drugs from strangers either. <laughs> but he says, no, no, it's, it's good. And, and we're like family here in Israel. I'm, you know, we, we all know each other. We're all connected. And so I'm, I'm your Uncle Pinchas. You should take the candy from me. I looked at it. It was wrapped. It was just a halls, and it was perfectly fine for them to take. So I said it was okay, and we, we took it. And uh, But he's become our go-to taxi driver uh, when Uncle we need Pinchas. to leave the Moshav. I, From trips to the emergency room to, you know, coffee runs to Rehovot, he's, he's quite a character. I, I had a long cab ride from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, and then I had this cab driver who was trying to convince me that Israel was absolutely the best at everything. And then we drove by that Sharon Park. I guess there used to be a garbage dump. It's now a tourist attraction oh, for in, recycling. In Cholon, yeah, the, yeah. the mountain thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so Exactly. Cool. So he's showing off about that. Look, look, garbage. We <laughs> turn it into a tourist place. Garbage. Where do you have that? And he kept going. And then he got to a point where no matter what I brought up, like cheese, we just want a, a thing in Switzerland. Best cheese. Mm-hmm. Wine, of course. You know, want something in France. Best wine. He even got into Danishes, like like pastries. We want some uh, bakery competition wow. somewhere in Europe, like a true uh, Israel lover. A patriot yeah. right there. <laughs> but, but see, you know, you're also the kind of person who talks to, to yeah. folks. And so you, you get these wonderful stories, too. I think. Yeah, yeah, I do, I do love to talk to cab drivers, usually, you know, where they're from and stuff. And I, I'm always interested if they were born there and what it's like to spend your whole life in a city like Jerusalem and... We always end up speaking about war, you know, if they've been to war. For some reason, that's like the elephant in the room when you speak to, I don't know, an Israeli, you know. I think that's something that most people who have never been to Israel don't understand. And that Mm. is we, as I said before, we've never known a day of peace since we came into being. And even though we are a strong country with a great military... Everyone, every single person has either lost someone or knows someone who was injured or um, in a terror attack or war, or they themselves have been injured in a terror attack or war. And that's just how it is. And when you read the news and you know, you know, you know that you either know the person who was was in the bus bombing or in the stabbing, or you know somebody who knows them. It's really, it's not six degrees of separation. It's one degree of separation. And we are all just living life to the fullest on the one hand, where we order that extra cup of coffee. But on the other hand, as soon as we hear a police siren, we wait to make sure there's not going to be a second one and a third, because that would mean it was a terror attack, because we're so... Wait, so much waiting for that because we we know it's always there in the background. Yossi Klein Alivi calls it neurotic zen. Hmm, that's a beautiful way of phrasing it. That's really he's and, he, and he's when, a terrific writer. It's really it's exactly right. Neurotic zen. When we talk about the differences between you know American Jewry and Israel Jewry, I mean one of the ways to describe it is just fifteen seconds. You know how often does an American Jew feel? He's got 15 seconds to go to a bomb shelter. And that's just that one simple idea that every Israeli is aware of. My daughter lives there, and everybody's got a bomb shelter. You know exactly where it is, <laughs> and you know that it needs to be open. <laughs> you know, how does that not influence your life? It, you know? it does. I mean, I still have nightmares about the summer of 2014 when it was the first time in the history of the state of Israel that we actually had rockets in our area of the country. And... 
we don't have a shelter in our house, so we had to run to the public shelter. And it's more than a 15-second oh, run, wow. and I'm doing yeah. this with two kids alone mm-hmm. at night. And we, my kids still line their shoes up by the door just in case. And mm-hmm. that was, what, five years ago. But I think American Jews are now dealing with something that is absolutely horrific. I mean, yeah. I heard right now that the, a school in Brooklyn, um, a, a Chabad school, had to put bulletproof glass on their doors because they're afraid of anti-Semitic attacks and shootings. Yeah, no... And mm-hmm. so there's there, there's that going on, too. And it's got to be a tough time here in America. Yeah, I mean, you have your foot in both worlds, Sarah. And one of the big, big issues right now in the Jewish world, especially me as editor-in-chief, that we see is a sense that both communities are drifting apart. You know, the Jews of Israel and the Jews of America. Mm-hmm. And there was the... Uh, Jewish Federation conference that held in Israel last year. And we need to talk. And the theme was we need to talk, which is what you say to someone before you're going to fire them. Uh, and I, th- I think they recognize they could have used a better phrasing. But, you know, uh, what's your what's your take on that? I mean, you know, I'm always the hopeful guy that looks for things we have in common and how do we recognize our differences without feeling threatened by them. One of the best comments I heard was from Richard Sandler, one of the presidents he said you know this conversation with his kids and this one's different than that one and different than that one and then he said you know two powerful words that's okay so at some point we need to sort of say that's okay so you have abc we have abc that's okay now let's see if we can make things better oh that's uh that's a good point i i think the bottom line is we have to know one another Mm. And I think it's wonderful when American Jews come to Israel. Birthright's great, but the problem is by the time they are they go on birthright, they've chosen to be on birthright, and they're in their 20s for the most part, and even now in their 30s. And so they've already, um, there's an expression in Hebrew that, you know, you, I already bought the shoes. They've decided right. that they already want to invest in mm-hmm. Israel. When I went to Israel for the first time in 1997, I was 16, and I didn't want to go. My Mm. mom was the one who said, no, no, you're going, and my dad was supporting her all the way on this. But it was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Century City Mall. It's now Westfield Mall, but back then it was Century City. It's a great mall, by the way. You know, make out with my boyfriend at the air vents and go to the movies. You had a boyfriend at 16. I had a boyfriend at 16. Yeah, and we're going public with it. Okay. Now you know. (laughs) (laughs) You'll go ice skating with my friends or go to the pool and... and, and, um, paint my toenails, whatever. I wanted to have that kind of summer. And my mom really pushed me to have the other summer. And it was not much of a choice, but I went. And it turns out she was right. I mean, she she went, she picked the wrong PR strategy completely because she had gone hard with the whole history and, and, and Judaism and family. And she forgot to mention the hot Israeli soldiers. But, <laughs> but it was really more than that. It was also for the first time in my entire life that I felt this coming together of my different identities. And I felt so alive and so at home and I saw within the country this passion and this zest for life and okay some argumentativeness and obnoxiousness too but also this real love and caring among everyone it reminded me of my family and these but these were total strangers and I think had it not been for that trip I may not have fallen in love with the same intensity and I think that and I really urge parents and grandparents to encourage 14, 15, 16-year-olds to go to Israel on these different summer programs and get to know Israelis because once you're there on the ground and you know people, 
then the news sound bites are not just sound bites. They're, they're headlines about stories about people that you know that you care about and places that you've been in. And it takes the, the understanding to the next level. So let's take one example. You, you know, obviously have been getting into Israeli culture and mores and ideas and traditions and stuff. Uh, one of the ideas about the Jews of Israel is it, they don't make that big a deal of denominations like we do here mm-hmm. in America. It's not that big a deal. You know, whether I'm going to go to Reform or Conservative or Orthodox and so forth, a lot of Jews in Israel, well, they may be, they may not eat kosher, but they'll go to a, what we consider an Orthodox synagogue, and they'll have no problem with that. And most of them have no problem with the way the Kotel, the, the Western Wall, is set up. You know, even though if you're American, you're saying, how dare you? Mm-hmm. You know, why can't, you know, I'm a woman rabbi and I want to put on tefillin and I want to dive in here and I should have my rights. So you have two different philosophies, two different worldviews, and you with foot in both worlds, how do you how do you deal and what do you make of these kind of, you know, intense conflicts uh, at the Western Wall? That's a wonderful question. So along with Jewish teenagers from America or from the diaspora, from other countries coming to Israel to understand what Israel is all about, we also have to get Jewish teenagers in Israel to the diaspora and understand what that's all about. Because there are different values and there are different concerns. And we, we in Israel owe it to our brothers and sisters in the diaspora to stand up for them as well. And so when non-Orthodox Jews are being marginalized in Israel, we Israelis have to really pressure our leaders to say, hey, that's not going to work because mm-hmm. we know folks in New York and Los Angeles and, and you know, um, in, in Kansas City and, and Chicago or in London or wherever all around the world that, that are feeling hurt and left mm-hmm. out by this and we won't stand for it. So we... In a way, the ideal situation, Sarah, would be if Israel worked a lot harder to become closer and more, uh, you know, recognize mm-hmm. the different approaches here in America. And if American Jews worked harder to appreciate the, the constraints and the limits and the differences of Israel, right exactly. now it's the opposite. Right now each side is just fighting for their view. Right. And it would be an ideal scenario if each side fought for the other view. And that's why we have to get to know each other. Mm-hmm. So, th- And this is what I believe we have to do. Jewish people, Jews and Arabs, Israelis, Palestinians, um, and also diaspora Jews and Israeli Jews. We have to meet each other, and we and have know, to talk to one another. And, and you know, we, we did. when uh, I just love the Sharansky Compromise at the Wall. They spent was, years on this. It was that so was heartbreaking. Thought through. It was, it was so really heartbreaking because heartbreaking. that was an example of that ideal that I'm talking about, and it was overseen by a really brilliant, thoughtful person who really looked at both sides, and it was kind of a crowning achievement here. Mm-hmm. We were celebrating, and we had, you know, people from the left, and although it didn't give them everything they wanted, not to either side. But that's compromise. It really is, and I, I, don't, I, I don't know if Bibi realizes the damage he did when he uh, backed out of that agreement, Sarah. I think he broke a lot of hearts. Mm-hmm. And that um, it's, it's a shame. And I, I worry about the damage that the prime minister is doing. When, when you look at American Jewry, majority of American Jews are Democrats and do not like the president of the United States. And 
this bromance between President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu is not going to serve the Jewish people well in the long term because it will not be forgiven or forgotten how the prime minister and the president um, have such a close relationship. And, and I worry you, about what that will yeah. mean for Israel's security in the future when a Democrat is in office or when a different kind of Republican is in office and what it also means for Jews in America and how they relate to Israel. So explain to our readers and listeners why the Jews of Israel are so pro-Trump. Well, they I are, think there are many correct. reasons. First of all, you know, two Jews and three opinions, but... They are, the, correct? They, overwhelmingly so. It's almost, uh, I think, 80% really like Right, the and it's not as if they're racist or bigots, or right? Is there any genuine reasons well, for them to be pro-Trump? I think they feel... That, I mean, you got to admit, that's a good question. It's a, good, it's a great question. <laughs> Israel is very, very good at... Um, at it's short-term strategy, but not the long-term strategy. Mm. And I think they see Trump as being, quote-unquote, pro-Israel because of you know recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and um, and other comments that he's made. And um, but but I think it's it's a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean the. But you understand it, right? I understand where there. it's coming from. I also mm-hmm. understand it comes from a place of fear, and I also and that's also. The reason why many Israelis continue to vote for the prime minister, mm-hmm. because he promises them security, and Israelis are afraid. We all are, and I include myself in that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, we. I went through the 2014 war. I have friends who've been killed in in terror attacks. I know people who've been injured in terror attacks, and in wars. And that does something to to you, and it does something to your view of the possibilities and your willingness to overcome those fears and look at the other side. I mean, I know it also firsthand. I wouldn't go back into the old city for 15 years. And what happened to me at Damascus Gate is on such a much smaller scale. But still, it prevented me from getting to know other people. So, you know, we're seeing this trend of circling the wagons and not building bridges to other communities because of fear. And so President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu really know how to tap into that. Mm-hmm. And they're very good at it. And, and they're... Um, they're very persuasive. But in the long term, I think it's going to be devastating. I think it will damage Israel. I think it will also damage the Jewish people worldwide. Uh, with the idea that when you're obsessed with security, uh, you think more short term, I think that's a good insight. And I think that describes sort of, you know, general Israeli society. And also, you know, the, the uh, there's a sense, I think it was actually Tom Friedman who wrote about this about Israeli brusqueness. And mm-hmm. um, he asked a shopkeeper, and I think I'm getting the story right. He asked the shopkeeper, you know, why aren't people more polite? And the shopkeeper said, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. You might step <laughs> out this door and get blown up. So well, why should I care? I mm-hmm, might step that's... out this door and get blown up. Why should I care? That there just isn't time for these niceties. And there's also that famous article in the LA Times years ago that the most important thing in Israel societal life was not to be a friar, mm-hmm. not to be a sucker, which I'm sure you can talk about at length, and maybe uh, Trump has tapped into that too, which is, you know, uh, I don't like to get ripped off, and Iran is not going to rip us off, and NATO is not going to rip us off, and China is not going to rip us off, and maybe something in there resonates with Israelis who abhor the idea of being ripped off and being friars, That's a really good point. Also, I think 
there's this, you know, Trump has mastered the tell it like it is right. personality. Brusqueness. I mean, <laughs> Beyond uh, brusqueness on steroids. But, he, you know, he, the, the, the tragic thing is he's not really telling it as it is. He's telling it as he wants us to see it. But people are. But that's another really good insight, Sarah. Because Israel is, uh, you know... Is We're a very talkless country. Exactly. Like, straight up. Just give it to me straight up. So if then... any country would be more forgiving of a super rough, blowhard, you know, I don't know what you call Trump, it would be kind of Israel that would go beyond the body language into, what am I getting? And I'm getting a movement of the embassy mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. I'm getting recognition of the Golan Heights. And I'm getting somebody who's telling the whole world, don't mess with Israel. And they didn't get that with Obama. So maybe they kind of say, hey, you know, I'll take it. I think you know, President Obama signed over one of the, the largest military aid packages to Israel, and uh, along with Congress, and certainly with a lot of support from, um, from the American Jewish community and the American community. But I think what's happening in the UN is just so disgraceful. And I, so I think you're right. That having somebody who is almost like the, uh, who is the exact opposite of the UN from the way that he speaks to and to what he says, is probably, in some ways, very, um, very validating for a lot of Israelis who are tired of being the the, the scourge of of many um, of many debates. And you know what? Let, let's. Let's be honest about something. There is anti-Semitism all over the world, and it's in all different camps. And when Israel gets sing- singled out time and time again for human rights violations in countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran are not being singled out, it's exhausting. It's really, really exhausting. And so it's, but it's also very ab- reassuring when yeah. someone is saying, you know what, it's not that way. And, right, right. But what I love about you is no matter how exhausting it gets, you kind of, you never leave, you never abandon hope. You always like sort of push forward. And I, My parents know. are optimists. My grandparents were optimists. I'm an optimist. I think Jewish people, if you want to make a generalization about Jews, so, which I'm going to do right now is that we we have some degree of cynicism, uh, especially um, Israelis who've been through so much, and some degree of exhaustion. But end of the day, we are optimists. We're this insistently thriving people, and we do we are capable of doing incredible things, and we've done incredible things. I think one of the things that helps in Israel to be an optimist is just there's a high level of fun that I don't feel here in America. Mm-hmm. When I'm in like Tel Aviv, it's just a lot of fun, Sarah. Oh, it's Sarah. great. You I'm see, telling you. You see families as, out at 11 at night with their kids. Yeah. And as much as, you know, there's that whole security thing and 150,000 rockets surrounding the country and the, and the terrorism fears and Iran nuclear mm-hmm. kind of threat and stuff, there's just an enormous amount of fun. Neurotic zen, as Yossi Klein-Alevi says. Absolutely. Yeah, and even in, in Jerusalem which is supposed to be, you know, have potential danger, and you have jazz festivals and art festivals. It's mm-hmm. the kind of stuff we don't see in the media that you Israelis kind of live through. I have a theory that it's your, it's your secret. You don't want the world to know. <laughs> you know, the news is all about the threats and the danger, but the reality is there's a, an enormous amount of fun that happens in Israel. There's a lot going on. Uh, you know, have you been? You've been to Shuk Machne Yehuda. Oh right? my God! So just being yeah. there during the day with the with the different fruits and vegetables out there and the smell of the spices and the tea. I love smells and I love um, color. And so I go there, 
And that's one of the places where I feel the most in my own flow. And then at night, the vendors start to go home and the doors close and suddenly bars pop up out of nowhere <laughs> and everyone goes out and drinks and parties and it's full of life. We got to do that one night. We, there, we must. Sure. We absolutely must. Yeah. Uh, now, so looking forward, um, do you ever see yourself coming back to Galut, exile? Well, I, I love visiting. As, as often as I do, I would love to visit more. Um, I'm, I think... Or are you like, do you feel settled in? Is I, there, it, yeah. I don't think I'm ever the kind of person who will ever be settled in completely anywhere. I mean, my garden is full of um, potted plants and things that I can move from one place to another. I have. I don't know if I will ever grow roots in one particular place. And so Jerusalem is the you know it's is my moral compass and my and where I, I i love to be the the moshav where i live on our dusty little road with the with the cactus and the and the rolling fields is also where i love to be and i've got my wind chimes hanging and but i also know that i might be up north at some point i may decide to go to you know ireland for three months and live in a fishing village um Maybe New York for a little while, Los Angeles for a while. Israel, Jerusalem especially, will always be that base of operations. Can but I make a suggestion? Sure. Wherever you go for a few months or mm -hmm. however long, pick a city that's got a bustling Lyft and Uber business <laughs> going. And then write stories More and conversations that's a great idea. with taxi drivers. That's a great, uh, absolutely. Yeah. But I... But I will all. But Jerusalem and the Moshav in Israel is is my home. Los Angeles is also my home. Um, it's not about the place; it's about the people that you're with. And so, wherever people I love are, is a place that I'm going to feel connected with. So, whether it's my kids, my partner, wherever we are, is home. And that's uh, that's a beautiful feeling. Not always an easy feeling because it can be lonely to have to get your bearings but it's also a wonderful one and I love where I am now I love being here at this table right now with you and I also love knowing that I'm going back home to Israel in a few days and um, I'll be back at the Shuk and I'll be back on the Moshav and I'll be with um, my community over there as well well we'll be uh, reading about it so your book is Jerusalem drawn and quartered mm -hmm. available on Amazon yes thank uh, you check it out check out uh Sarah's cover story this week in the Jewish Journal, Stories from the Road. And we're looking forward to seeing all your amazing stories that you'll write in the future for us. Thank you so much for having me, and it's always wonderful to see you. Thanks, Sarah.